Well, good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for being here with us today. Well, the end of John chapter 12 and the beginning of John 13 mark a major turning point in this gospel. At this point, Jesus's public ministry comes to an end. Basically, everything we read between here and Jesus's arrest is occurring between him and the disciples. No one else. Theologians and scholars have often split the gospel of John at this point into two big categories. Chapters 1 through 12 are called the book of signs. Signs or miracles. And chapters 13 through 21 are called the book of glory. Now, how exactly will Jesus display his glory in the second half of John? Well, as we'll start to see this morning, it won't be in ways that the world expects. So open up to John chapter 13, verse 1. Feel free to follow along as we go. Use one of our Bibles if you need it and take one home if you don't have a Bible. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. Uh, Thank you that we have the privilege, the joy, the honor of worshiping you freely the way we can uh, in a building that we own um, that you have given to us. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would steward our time, steward our worship well today, that what we say and what we do here uh, would not just be about us, as as good as it is to be comforted and encouraged and, and taught and uplifted, all those things are, are good. Uh, Lord, remind us that Sunday morning is about you and us giving glory and praise to you as you deserve. And so, Lord, we ask that you be with us as we read your word today. Uh, help us understand your glory and help us understand what it is that you call us to do, who it is that you call us to be who it is that you've made us to be by your grace uh, in order that we might glorify you in this life and in order that we might stand in your glory in eternity. Lord, again, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your spirit and your word. Thank you for this church. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Several times before in the gospel of John, we read that Jesus's hour had not yet come. Back in chapter 2, before Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding in Cana, we read that his time had not yet come. We see it again in chapter 8, as he taught in the temple. And in chapter 10, Jesus somehow escapes the angry religious leader's hands. Why? How? His hour had not yet come. But according to verse 1, Jesus' hour has come by the time we get to John 13. At the end of chapter 12, we read this, verse 27. 
Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So Jesus's time has come. Fair enough. But time for what? Verse one told us to depart out of this world to the father. And sure enough, Jesus has talked about this before as well. Back in chapter seven, verse thirty three, Jesus said, I will be with you a little while longer and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. Jesus repeats those words in chapter 8. So somehow, some way, Jesus is leaving. And since this is the book of glory, you might expect Jesus' departure to be some grand statement-making, mic-drop gesture of power and victory. That would be pretty glorious, wouldn't it? But those words at the end of verse 1 sound a bit ominous, don't they? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That sounds dark, somber, and foreboding. It makes you wonder, what does John know as he writes these first few words of the book of glory? Well, we'll see that later in the gospel. But for now, pick up in verse 2. We read there. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. That's my two oldest kids' favorite verse. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So washing feet in any world, but especially the ancient world, is not exactly glorious. If you think feet are gross now, imagine how they must have looked, felt, and smelled in the age before sweat-wicking fabric, sneaker balls, and running water. Washing feet was the kind of work that even the lowliest slaves loathed. Some rabbis advised Jewish slaves to refuse to wash the feet of their Gentile masters. The work was simply too degrading. One scholar notes that in all of ancient Jewish and Greco-Roman writings that we have access to, all these old manuscripts, there is not a single instance recorded of someone higher on the social food chain washing the feet of someone lower. It just didn't happen in the ancient world. But that's exactly what happens in this passage when Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And that helps us understand Peter's shock in verse 6. Peter considered it scandalous to let the man he called the Holy One of God back in chapter 6 wash his feet. Way back in chapter 1, John the Baptist said that he wasn't even worthy to remove Jesus' sandals. But here, Jesus is trying to wash Peter's feet. But in verse 8, Jesus makes it clear. If Peter does not allow Jesus to wash his feet, then Peter has no share with Jesus. Maybe there's a bigger lesson for us in those words. That if you and I refuse the offer of cleansing for our sins by Jesus, even if we do it in some sense of humility, we have no share with him either. But then in addition to teaching us something about the cleansing that only Jesus can provide, in John 13, Jesus sets an example for his followers. Verse 16 is our first truly, truly statement of the chapter. A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If Jesus can humble himself to such a menial form of service, then so should his disciples. That includes me. And that includes you. If our Lord is not above the lowest form of service that he could imagine in his culture, 
then we are not above the lowest form of service that we can imagine in ours. And then we get to verse 20, our second truly, truly statement. Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. We've seen this before. Whoever embraces Jesus' disciples embraces him. And whoever embraces Jesus embraces God. But here's the thing. We haven't seen any glory yet. And we're in the book of glory, aren't we? But maybe that's okay. I mean, surely the rest of the chapter will contain something much more glorious than washing feet. Though before we leave that point, a quick side note. There might be wisdom in us being careful about the phrase servant leadership. Obviously, it gets thrown around a lot in leadership circles and in work environments. Now, is servant leadership generally a good idea? Of course it is. But can it be manipulated? Yes. Sometimes we can use acts of humble service as a means of trying to get glory. Especially if we feel the need to make sure everyone knows about the act of servant leadership that we performed. As sinners, we can even corrupt that. And we must be on our guard. But back to the book of glory. Again, I bet we'll find something more glorious as we keep moving through the chapter. For example, verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Okay. Well, this is kind of awkward. Because betrayal isn't exactly glorious either. Jesus predicted his betrayal at the end of chapter 6. Did it again at the beginning of chapter 12. He hinted at it throughout chapter 13 as he is washing feet. It's not like Jesus is caught by surprise by this. Someone who knew all about betrayal was King David. He wrote those words that Jesus quoted in verse 18. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That comes from Psalm 41 verse 9. When David's close friend apparently stabbed him in the back. Well, Jesus is about to experience the same thing with Judas. The man who shared bread with him. And adding insult to injury. Jesus just washed Judas's feet. And now he's going to be betrayed. So we're 21 verses into the supposed book of glory. And you know, let's be honest. It doesn't seem all that glorious. But surely some kind of glory is coming around the corner. Maybe a crowd will try to make Jesus king again. That happened in chapter 6. Maybe Jesus will once and for all trounce his opponents who have caused him so much trouble throughout the book. Or maybe the disciples, 
11 of them at least, will finally fully grasp who Jesus is and worship him accordingly. There's still lots of potential for glory in John 13. And after all the signs they've seen Jesus perform, how could they not glorify him? Surely the disciples will come through. Verse 33. Jesus says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Talked about that earlier. Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Well, we're now at the end of chapter 13 and still no glory. Peter is going to deny Jesus. The boldest, the most outspoken, the de facto leader of the disciples is going to disown his Lord. And not just once, but three times. You know, Judas always was a little bit shady. In hindsight, there were some red flags that he wasn't all in. But Peter, he would lay down his life for Jesus. Or so he thought. Well, so much for the book of glory, huh? So far, it hasn't lived up to its name. Washing feet, betrayal, denial. None of that sounds glorious at all. In fact, it sounds humiliating. It sounds shameful. It sounds despicable. Yet look what Jesus says in verses 31 and 32. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. That's a lot of glory crammed in two verses. For some strange reason, In the midst of washing feet and being betrayed and being denied, Jesus has convinced himself that now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Maybe the fumes from all those stinky feet have left Jesus confused. Because none of what's happening to him in this chapter looks very glorious, does it? So how in the world do we make sense of this? How can John 13, in any shape, form, or fashion, be described as part of the book of glory? The word glory is typically associated with success, 
prestige, wealth, splendor, beauty, magnificence, that kind of stuff. In the Bible, glory is associated with God's greatness. But for a man who claims to be God's son, who claims to be one with God and sent from God, Jesus doesn't appear all that great in this chapter. He's washing feet like the lowliest servant. He's being betrayed by one of his friends. He'll be denied multiple times by another. How is the Son of Man glorified? How is God glorified in John 13? Well, maybe we need to think a little bit differently about glory. Worldly glory shows up nowhere in this chapter. Worldly glory means people fall down and kiss your feet, not you washing theirs. Worldly glory means people are unceasingly loyal to you, not betraying you. Worldly glory is about people laying down their lives for you because you're just that great. Not people leaving, leaving you hanging out to dry to save their own skin. The only way that John 13 can be considered anything close to glorious is if we consider the possibility that worldly glory might not be all there is. Jesus clearly is not concerned with shallow, superficial, and temporary worldly glory. He's concerned with heavenly glory. Deep, true, eternal glory that only comes from God and not men. Jesus will be glorified not by being served, but by serving. He'll be glorified not as an earthly king ascending a throne, but as a betrayed man ascending a cross. He'll be glorified not by Peter laying down his life for him. At least not yet. Instead, Jesus will be glorified by laying down his life for Peter. And for you. And for me. And the other disciples. And for all who believe in him. Jesus is not after worldly glory. He's after heavenly glory. And for that, his hour has come. Again, we don't usually associate the word glory with humility, rejection, and suffering. But for Jesus, humility, rejection, and suffering are the way to glory. The author of Hebrews describes Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus' path to heavenly glory went through a fallen, less than glorious world. And if Jesus was correct back in verse 16, that very first truly, truly statement of the morning, if Jesus is right about that, 
that no servant is greater than his master? Then humility, rejection, and suffering may just be the way to heavenly glory for us as well. As Jesus' disciples, we too are called to abandon our concern for worldly glory to pursue a better kind of glory. We too must be willing to bear, endure, and do some rather inglorious things in the eyes of the world if heavenly glory is what we're after. Jesus was not above washing feet, and neither are we. Jesus was betrayed. We might be too. Jesus was denied. People may deny us. But remember Romans 8, verse 18. The Apostle Paul writes that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. They don't even belong in the same conversation. And don't forget verse 17 either. We suffer with Jesus, that we may also be glorified with Jesus. Christians should not be surprised when we don't get worldly glory. Jesus told his disciples in John 12 that whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He tells them in John 15 that the world will hate them because of him. The world will hate you. Because of him. Jesus never promised us worldly glory in following him. If anything, whatever worldly glory we get is the exception to the rule. Some might promise you that you can have your cake and eat it too. That you can live for worldly glory now and still get heavenly glory in the end. But that is not what Jesus teaches Our path to heavenly glory is the path of Jesus. It's one of humility, rejection, and suffering. If Jesus was not exempt from those things, we shouldn't expect to be either. No servant is greater than his master. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen or eternal. The challenges of following Jesus are real. And if we have not experienced challenges for the sake of our faith, maybe we ought to prepare for the possibility in the future. Because worldly glory is not guaranteed to us. But the heavenly glory that lies ahead is more than worth the wait. In his life, Jesus didn't always get the glory he deserved. 
but he's being glorified now. And as we press on and following him, we won't always get glory either. But we look forward to standing in his glory in eternity. The worldly glory that we miss out on as followers of Jesus, it's transient anyway. The heavenly glory that we will one day receive is eternal. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise of glory that lies ahead of us. Thank you for the reward that lies ahead of us. Your word is not shy. It's not bashful about talking about the reward that we look forward to. And so, Lord, I pray that we would press on in faith, looking forward to glory, knowing that Following your son is not the path to glory in this world, but it is the path to glory in eternity. So I pray that you would give us endurance, give us faith, give us perseverance, that we might press on to glory. I pray that you would humble us, that we would not get discouraged, that we would not lose heart when life in this fallen world and life as a follower of your son looks less than glorious. I pray that you would help us look ahead and press on. And thank you that we get glory, not because of anything in us, but we look forward to glory because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Thank you that Jesus was willing to do the things necessary, that sinners like us might one day experience your glory. Lord, I pray that we would... Accept the cleansing that only Christ can offer, the cleansing of his broken body and his shed blood on the cross, that we might look forward to glory when we stand in your presence. We love you. We honor you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.